0: So we're up to Chapter 1, Mishnah 7. It's a really short one, but I think a very powerful and important lesson, especially in due to some of the revelations that we've encountered uh, in our greatest society the past couple of months. Again, we are going through the lineage of Torah leadership, beginning with Moshe, Men of the Great Assembly, Shimon Atzarek, the last of the Men of the Great Assembly, Antigonus, and then we started talking about the Zugos the time in history, several hundred years, where the Jewish people were led by two co-leaders, one the Nasi one the Afbeist. So we're in right now in the second group. The second group of Zugos. The first one was Yossi ben Yohezer and Yossi ben Yochanan. Those were the first group of leaders. And then we have Yeshua ben Prachya who we learned a lot about last week, and Netai Bailey. So Netai HaArbeli, what does he say? Netai from Arbel. Omer, he says, so we'll read the Mishnah, and then we'll try to see what we can learn from it. <laughs> Distance yourself from a bad neighbor, <laughs> and do not associate, or do not become, befriend a Russia, a wicked person, <laughs> and do not despair of the retribution. So again, we've seen this theme, or this structure, throughout the whole book so far, that the leader, he had uh, an axiom that he would say almost always is comprised of three parts, one, two, and three. Number one, distance yourself from a bad neighbor. Number two, do not befriend a wicked person. Number three, do not despair from the retribution. All the commentaries try to understand what's the common theme being strung between the three. And Here it seems like very clearly that you know if we had the previous Mishnah that talked about how to have good influences. How to have a good mentor? How to have a good friend? You have to judge favorably. Good friend is so critical, so important. You have to even buy, you have to even pay money for a good friend. And you have to anoint for someone for yourself to be your teacher. Even maybe they not be, they're not worthy of it. So that's one side to build up the positive influences in our lives, both in the form of mentors and the form of friends. That was last Mishnah. Here it's the flip side. It's about avoiding. Negative influences, avoiding the kind of people and the kind of society that will drag us down following their behavior. And there's an interesting statement in the Talmud that answers the question, which one's more important? Is it more important to have good influences or is it more important to not have bad influences? Are good influences, are they more beneficial than Bad influences are harmful or not it means if, if someone could choose one to have good or to not have bad, which one would they choose you You want to have good influences, you want to not have bad influences, but which one of them is more potent? I think you can hear arguments from both sides you know there's this famous axiom that I don't know where it comes from, but a little bit of light banishes a lot of the darkness, which seems to imply that a little bit of good influence is able to get rid of a lot of bad. That's a statement of um, apocryphal origins. But there's a statement in the Talmud, that's very powerful. It says, me'atzmo verasha me'chaviro which means a tzadik is from himself and a righteous person is from himself and a rasha is from his friend. Which There's various interpretations of what this means but it could potentially mean is that if someone becomes a tzaddik, if someone becomes righteous, they had to invest a lot of their own effort to get there. They can't rely on the society to bring them towards the promised land, so to speak. Whereas a rasha, if someone becomes wicked, it's mechavirats from his friends. Because all you need to have is bad friends, and that's, you're probably, you know, likely are going to follow their ways. Which seems to imply that a harmful influence is more potent, more powerful, in a negative sense, then a good influence is in a positive sense. Two examples that I heard from great friends of mine are bad reviews in a restaurant. If there's one bad review in a restaurant, they may have five or ten good ones, but the, but the bad one seems to hold more weight. And similarly with relationships, if you have some bad interaction with a couple, with, with spouses, that's probably going to outweigh a lot of very positive relationships. There's an amazing letter that I saw uh, from the Chazonish, where he writes he gives a scale to this. Suppose you have someone who's giving trying to influence a group positively. And he and he's giving them musr and he's giving them inspiration and he's trying to to, to, to inspire them towards becoming better people. And then you have one guy on the back who starts making funny faces. He's doing smirks. Or he's like making uh, quick jabs at, at the speaker. So the statement goes, Lezanos achas, one derision, Doche mea tochachos. That casts away a hundred reprimands. A reprimand maybe would help someone towards going the right path, but one der- derisive statement belittling the whole situation, that negates a hundred. It means one. Negative influence from one person is able to outweigh a 100 positive influences for that same person. So that's the broad idea. The broad idea is that this, we don't necessarily think about this because in order to prevent bad influences, you have to start before you have those bad influences and you have to make your decisions based upon who you're going to associate as a result of those decisions which is something we're not, we're, not, we're not trained to do, and this is what the mission is telling us. Before you have friends, before you have neighbors, choose who they are. So for example, the Talmud tells us, when someone selects a home, where are you going to live? So you want to look at the school, and you want to look at the lot size, and the layout, a lot of things. Says the Talmud, before you look at if it's a dear or not, if it's a nice home, check the neighbors. Because, Again, the Talmud's perspective is what is going to be most likely to contribute towards you having a positive spiritual result of any interaction. And therefore, what's more impactful than anything is who the neighbors are. And we don't even think about that. We think maybe the neighborhood or the stools or the stool district, but most important is it, you know, what the taxes are. Thomas says before anything, who are the neighbors? Because that's going to influence you much more than uh than anything else. Now, the the Mishnah uses different terms. There's the bad neighbor and there's the wicked person. So I see all the commentaries are saying, they're trying to figure out what exactly does it mean by these subtleties? Don't be close. Distance yourself. Make yourself far from a bad neighbor. And don't befriend an evil person. So first of all, what's the difference between a bad neighbor and an evil person? That's That's not necessarily immediately evident, number one. And number two, why are we told, in one instance, from the bad neighbor, distance yourself, and in the other instance, with the wicked person, don't become friend, friends with them? So, it seems like, to me, if you're, you know, you have a neighbor, there's, you know, it's a it, you're close, but you're not, not not necessarily that close. You could go, you know, 10 years without, ta- without talking to your neighbor, you could wave at them, or whatever, but you're not really necessarily friends. Whereas, if you're a friend with someone, that's even closer. So it seems like when you're told to distance yourself from a neighbor, that seems like you're way more distant. Don't even be their neighbors. Make sure there's plenty of space between you and them. Don't even be their neighbor. Whereas the wicked person doesn't say don't be their neighbors, just don't be their friend. If they're in the neighborhood, okay. You could be maybe their neighbor, just don't be their friend. So what's it so it seems like that the distance we have to place between, between us and the bad neighbor is greater than the distance we have to place between us and the evil one, the wicked one. You know, what does this mean? What do these terms mean? What does it mean, a bad neighbor, and what does it mean, a wicked one? So the Talmud tells us that there's two kinds of wicked people. There's wicked people, and there's really wicked people. And what's the difference? So the Talmud says that when you have something which is ra, bad, evil, that's someone that's evil to God and evil to man I and mean, some people they 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 their relation with God maybe leaves something to be desired, but they're very friendly with their neighbors they're very they're, they're good people with regards to how they interact with other people they're interpersonally they're fine. it's just that relationship between them and God needs some mending that's one kind of evil, but that's not as bad as someone who is evil both to God. And to people. So Rashi gives an example. If someone's a thief or a murderer, that's someone, well, to, to steal or to murder is against the Torah, it's against God, but it's also against your neighbors. It's against the interests of other people as well. That's much worse than someone who is evil, who's wicked with respect to the relationship with God, but not with respect, but they're okay with their neighbors. So the example of like Rashi is someone who desecrates the holidays or someone who eats not kosher. That's someone that's rejecting, rebelling against God, but not against other people. Because you don't hurt other people by eating non kosher. And therefore, perhaps we could suggest that the more evil someone is, the more of a bad influence that they are, the more distance you should place between you and them. So when someone is bad to God and bad to people, don't even be neighbors with them. Don't don't even live in the same neighborhood. You have to put if they live here, you gotta move to other zip code. Whereas if someone needs work but is not totally evil, you could be their neighbor. That's fine. And you can have a cordial relationship with them. You don't have to turn away and run to the other side whenever you see them. But don't become good friends with them because they'll influence you. And that's a way to understand what the Mishnah is telling us is that to the degree of negative influence that they could potentially have on you, that's how much distance you should place between you and them, which seems like it's good advice. This is this seems like it's, it it makes a lot of sense. So I want to dig in a little bit into some of these lessons of of the perils of bad neighbors and bad friends. So first of all the first episode where someone chose bad neighbors was the the instance of Lot. Lot and Abram they had to go separate ways and Lot he was he was captivated by all the wealth and all the power and all the prestige of Sodom and Gomorrah. And therefore, he ignored the fact that there'll be a bad influence on him. And therefore, he chose to embrace the bad neighbors because of all the uh, material benefits that he would garner as a result. And we know how that ended up for him. There's another episode. There's many times where this idea is hinted in the Torah, uh, but also very powerfully in the book of uh, Numbers, in the story of Korach. Korach mounts a rebellion against Moshe. And when the Torah outlines who are his co-conspirators, Rashi does an amazing job of telling us, of of contrasting or or utilizing information from the rest of the Torah to find out that these people were actually neighbors. Because the Torah, in the beginning of the Book of Numbers, tells us where every tribe was camped. And if you look at where all the tribes were camped and all the people that were part of the conspiracy, conspiracy against Moshe, they were all neighbors. And Rashi tells us, like, why does it mention all these people and where they're from? Because the Shevet of Ruvain, the tribe of Ruvain, was right next to the part of Levi that was Kahas, that was where Korach is from. And therefore, Rasha which means woe unto the wicked one and woe unto his neighbor. Which seems to imply that had Korach's co-conspirators, had they lived elsewhere, they probably would not have been influenced by the by the drive towards rebellion and mutiny of Korach, and they would have been spared. And we know how that ended up as well. So that's the simple idea. The, the first idea is that you're more like you're going to be influenced by your neighbors, and if they're really really bad people, don't be their neighbors. That's number one. Don't befriend a wicked person. So I saw a very frightening teaching by Rabbi Yona. I'm trying to understand what what it means. We'll try to grapple with what he says here. Don't befriend a wicked person. And he says like this: He says, "Well, if you do, if someone does one sin, regardless of whether the sin's against God or against man, someone sins. That's limited, you know. That's one sin. And yes, it's terrible. You repent hopefully and fix it. But when someone is befriending and supporting a wicked person," They actually become connected spiritually to that person. And therefore, everything that person does affects them. So you have one sin in isolation. Okay. It's, it's terrible, but you could address it and you're done with. Whereas if you connect yourself to a wicked person, you become spiritually bound to each other. And thus all his actions, they can be reattributed back to you. So this one sin of befriending a wicked person, that could lead to millions of sins. As opposed to just one very evil act on its own, it's only one sin. And And you're done with it. What if you want to befriend them in order to influence them? Do you have to befriend them to influence them? Is it appropriate for someone to compromise on their own stature in order to help others? That's a hard question. The first rule is uh, do no harm, right? If you're going to harm yourself, maybe you'll help someone else, but well, is that really worth the trouble? We're told that our nation has the responsibility of the mandate of the Kurulam fits in the world, bringing the world to perfection. Now, if you look at all the instructions of the Torah, never does it say, go out to the idolaters and try to bring them back to monotheism. It doesn't say that anywhere in the Torah. Yet... We're tasked with this responsibility of changing the whole world. We're told we're going to be small number, and we're told to be insular. You look at the – there's many misses in the Torah that say, don't associate with with idolaters. Have your own communities. Be insular. So it seems like to be in opposition. Well, let's look at history. If we could say, like, where is the world today versus where it was 2,000 years ago and trace me reasons why it changed. So I think it's undeniable that the what we would call the ideals of Abraham are widely accepted today. Whereas 2,000 years ago, they were a foreign concept limited to a very insular community. Now, at what point in these 2,000 years were the Jews not insular? It's relatively res- recently, maybe a couple hundred years, when the die was already cast that the ideals of Abraham are being permeated throughout the world. So, again, the, the argument is that Abraham and Abraham's descendants are told you will be the beacon for the world. It doesn't say you should try to think about how you'll be most effective at being the beacon of the world. It says follow the instructions and then you'll be the beacon. And you, you know what happened for the large part of history is that we did follow the instructions and we were. We are – when you look back now in history, it's hard for us to see how all the points, all the dots connected, certainly during the time. But we know that the Jewish or the Judeo-Christian ideals, if you will, they have become the accepted norm in the vast majority of the world. Now, even Abraham himself, Abraham himself, he had two modes of influencing people. There was mode number one where he had his tent and he welcomed people into his tent. Again, he wasn't going out to them and being subject to their influence. He brought them to him and they were subject to his. That's number one. Number two, he would go and have very public... Debates, but very impersonal one. Impersonal ones, where he wasn't engaging with people. It wasn't like, wasn't befriending the wicked people. He was debating them, and he was trouncing them with his logic. And that was done in a very public setting, not not an intimate one. And that, again, does not conflict with uh, this Mishnah, because he wasn't befriending them. So we see two ways of influencing others without necessarily being influenced. And we see a whole history of a nation and ideals that were so foreign from the uh, accepted conventional wisdom 2,000 years ago, yet have become so pervasive in our world, despite the fact that we never went on any sort of organized, concerted mission to try to disseminate that. Now, we say that part of the reason why the Jewish people are always – Wandering from place to place is to spread our influences. But remember, we don't choose to go into exile. God is the one who puts the chess pieces uh, and maneuvers history to make sure that our influence will spread to every corner of the world. But that nowhere in the Torah does it say you, using your tiny brain comparatively, should try to think about how you can influence the world. It says you will influence the world if you do X, Y, and Z. A, B, C, D, a lot of other things, right? That's what it says. And for the large part of history, we've followed those instructions and we've a- attained those results. And how the instructions yield those outcomes, that's not our responsibility that's God's. So let's get back to not befriending evil people. So I, I think that, you know, maybe today in all the revelations that are going on with um, prominent uh, leaders in politics... And in culture and entertainment, it's been a, a trend the past couple of months of people being exposed uh, for a really bankrupt uh, moral character. And I, I think that you know, even the fact that we are exposed to all this news, I think it really has a negative effect. I'll give you an example. The verse in the end of Genesis, it talks about after Jacob dies – Jacob passes away, and he asks beforehand, he asks Joseph to bury him in Israel, and he makes him promise, makes him swear, and afterwards, Jacob assembles all his sons, and he gives them all blessings, and then he passes away, and they mourn him, and the Egyptians also mourn him, he was a hero, a great hero in broader society as well, and Finally, Joseph goes to Pharaoh and asks, makes a formal request to Pharaoh that he be allowed to take Jacob back to the cave of the patriarchs, back to Israel for burial. And, Jake, and Pharaoh agrees, and the verse indicates why. Go back to, he tells Joseph, go back to Israel and bury your father like he made you swear. So Rashi points out is that the only reason why Pharaoh allowed Joseph to bury his father in Israel was because he had made him swear that. Which seems to indicate that had Joseph not sworn to bury Jacob in Israel, Pharaoh would not have allowed this to happen. He would have forced him to bury him in Egypt. Now Rashi says why? Well, why does Pharaoh only allow if he makes him swear? So Rashi tells us, that there was also another agreement, another oath that Joseph had made many years prior to Pharaoh. Because the rule was, in Egypt, that the Pharaoh had to be versed in all languages. And when Joseph was being nominated to be the viceroy of Egypt, he demonstrated his proficiency in all the languages of the world. And they were going through language after language, and finally they got to Hebrew. And Joseph, of course, could speak Hebrew, but Pharaoh could not, which technically by Egyptian law would invalidate Pharaoh as a legitimate king. And Joseph swore to Pharaoh that he won't reveal the fact that he is lacking in one of the languages of the world, he doesn't speak Hebrew. And therefore, says Rashi that Pharaoh says, if I make you renege on your oath to your father... There may come a time that you'll renege on your oath to me. So some of the commentaries ask, wait a minute, is Joseph going to go and start badmouthing his superior? He's going to start revealing because, oh, you made me break one oath, I'm going to break the other oath. No. The answer is that once Joseph gets accustomed, once he gets exposed to certain behavior, once an oath is not sacrosanct, it's very likely that that's going to erode the seriousness and severity that he previously placed in his oath and will eventually come a time where he'll reveal the oath that he made, um, to Pharaoh, uh, not to reveal the fact that, uh, Pharaoh was not conversed in Hebrew, which I think extends, extends this idea more. When you're exposed to certain behavior, that filters in and that actually affects you on, on, on a, on a very intimate level that you're not even aware. Joseph, if he was just exposed to the idea of breaking oaths, that would already influence him to break further oaths, perhaps down the line. I had a a Rebbe, a teacher, Risha Shiva in Israel, that whenever he heard the church bells ringing, he would right away cover his ears. He says he doesn't want to be exposed to it. He feels like even just hearing this noise, he doesn't want to have any part of it. That's what he would always cover his ears because he doesn't want to be exposed to any sort of influence at all. Even if it's the most oh, it's bells, right? It could be might as well be the bell that oh, that you ring by the doorbell, right? It might as well be that. It's the same noise, but no, you know, it comes from this place. He doesn't want to listen to it. He would cover his ears, which shows this this idea that. We try to distance ourselves as much as possible from any bad influence, be it a bad neighbor, a bad friend, or even bad behavior or, or bad associations. Those all penetrate. And finally, the Mishnah ends, do not despair from the retribution. So Rashi gives us two different interpretations of what this means. So according to one interpretation, it means don't despair that retribution will not come. You say, well, why should I be worried about all these bad influences? Everything's going for us. Everything's going for him, the bad influence. Why should I lock myself out of their world, and their sphere? Which, which is a way of saying that people are not assured that the retribution will come. And therefore, why should I distance myself from the bad influence when it's only good for them and it seems like there's a lots of good forecasts in the future for them. And therefore, the verse tells us, don't despair, which means don't give up on the fact that retribution will come. And when it comes for your evil neighbor or your evil friend, it's going to influence you as well. You'll be swept up with it too. That's one interpretation. Another interpretation that Rashi brings is that Don't despair from retribution when retribution actually comes. Means when bad, when, when the tide turns on an individual, on a community, on society, on a nation, there is a tendency towards getting sad and, and depressed and trying to look, grasp for answers. And here we're being encouraged. It's kind of like ending the mission on a positive note. Don't 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 give up. Don't be despaired when retribution actually happens to us. And if you'll notice, when if you read through scripture, and you find that there's two there's two ways that the prophets taught to us. They taught to us in a very foreboding, ominous way about be wary about what you're doing because the uh, retribution is coming. But what about when retribution already comes when we are already in the throes of 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 agony, of pain, of punishment, of dispersion, of expulsion. What then? Then the message is very positive, and the message is very inspirational. Don't despair because of bad things that happen to you. Always try to find positivity. Try to find the silver lining. Try to find the meaning in your suffering, which is a, a very, a very uh, nice theme to leave off with the Mishnah. But I just want to circle back to the first interpretation here. So, for example, Rabinu Yonah, one of the commentaries, he says that someone who wants to have a bad neighbor or a bad friend and they think they're able to shield themselves from all the negative influences. So, some say they might be able to try to time the market. I'll be good friends with him as long as it serves my influence, uh, my, my benefit, my purposes, my goals. But when things turn sour, I'll jump off the boat and I'll be spared. I, maybe that's something that Lot would have said when he went to Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm just going to be here for a little bit. Once I make a big, I'll move out. Or I, I'll, I'll be here and I'll try to shield myself as best as I can from the bad influences. I'm sure he did that. Lot, after all, was influenced by Abraham as well. But we see what actually happened when the... Retribution came, it came very swiftly, and Lot wasn't really able to save himself or to save his whole world with him. He lost his wife, he lost some of his children, he lost all of his material possessions, and that's all a result of not avoiding bad influences. Now, there's an amazing Talmud that I want to read to you here, which again highlights this point that we don't necessarily see punishment for wicked people, right? That's not that's not our job. Our job is to avoid the bad influences and to be aware that the retribution will come, and don't despair if it doesn't come. So the Talmud tells us something very powerful. That, well, it says that, that Moshe, when he went up to heaven, and he's looking over God's shoulder, so to speak, where God's writing the Torah, and God writes that the Almighty is erach apayim, slow to anger. means when the Almighty gets angry, he doesn't exact retribution right away. So Moshe tells God, well, you missed the word. You should have written erach apayim la God is slow to anger for the sadikim, And God says, no, 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 no. Erach apayim, I'm slow to anger for everyone. Even for shame, even for wicked people. That's the way God, that's the that's the way God treats us. And God tells him, You should see, you should be aware that there's gonna come a time in the future in your history, in your story, where you're gonna very much want me to be slow to anger for wicked people as well. Fine, that's where the narrative ends. And it fast forward to the story of the golden calf. Moshe goes down from heaven and he sees the people engaging in. This uh, uh, idolatry or seems like idolatry. Very bad behavior. And God says, I'm destroying them. And Moshe says, wait a minute. Slow to anger. Remember that? And God tells him, but wait a minute. Didn't you tell me that's only for tzaddikim?" Moshe, you yourself said that should be only for tzaddikim. I'm going to listen to you. And Moshe responds to God. But didn't you say it's also for Rashaim? It's also for the wicked ones? And that's why the verse concludes, Yigdal Hashem Ka'sher Dibarta, where Moshe tells him, I want you to expand the character of God, the, the, the characteristic of the treatment of God, Ka'sher as you spoke, as you mentioned earlier, which means as you pledged to give a lot of runway for the wicked before you exact punishment. This is the way God treats us in, the war, in our world. We, you know, certainly our nation, We've gone through some tough times, and we've had interactions with nations and individuals that have been decidedly negative. And here we're told, avoid them, right? resist them, don't befriend them, they're bad. Don't fall into their lot. But if you're living under the Roman Empire, Pax Romana, and the Romans are very brutal in their Cruelty and their treatment of Jewish communities, and their very uh, painful and restrictive laws that they pass and decrees they pass against the Jewish people, and you're you know you're sitting in the middle of 400 years of Roman domination. The fact that Rome will fall and will be an afterthought once they're gone, that's not very helpful to you right now. Right? What does it do for me right now? Yeah. And says to, to, says the to mission, don't despair. Don't despair. Yes, there's a lot of time between sin, so to speak, of the evil, and when they get punished. And I would say, dare I say, if you were stuck in the Kovner ghetto in 1944, the fact that Nazi Germany is going to be destroyed within 18 months, it doesn't help you, necessarily. You have a tendency to get despaired, despair. And any time throughout history, uh, the evil has a a relatively long shelf life. And we're told to dissociate from them, even if it means giving up, so to speak, being part of society to a certain degree. You know, would you advise someone to go, knowing what you know today, would you advise someone to pursue a career in Hollywood? That's a hard question to answer. But clearly our Mishnah will say, don't befriend those people, because you know what? It's It's a culture. It's a cultural problem and you're – if you're going to immerse yourself in that culture, you're going to be influenced invariably. But wait a minute. They control the levers of power and culture of, of our world. They're the ones who are in charge. They're the ones who are able to shape the narrative. I want to be part of that. And they seem to be all powerful. Misha says, don't despair for the retribution. Yes, they may have if, – if there is a convention of, of evil in the world – they may be very powerful and may seem to be indestructible for the time being. Don't despair. Retribution will indeed come for them, and therefore it's better for you to avoid such uh interactions. So to conclude. With uh this week's parsha in Vaishlach, uh, Jacob sends a message to Esau. And the right at the beginning of the parsha, Im I lived with Lavon, with Laban, and now I'm coming to visit you. And we know they have this uh sort of climactic reunion, Jacob and his brother, who had pledged to kill him 30 years prior. Now, Rashi points out that in Garti, I lived with Laban, but the word Garti, it's the same letters as Tariag. Tariag is the Mount of, Mount of Mitzvos, which um, what Jacob is some liminally hinting to Esau is that even though I lived with Laban, I still observed Taryak, and that's of course for Jacob, and we saw that again with Rebecca that even though they were she was submerged in a bad environment, she wasn't influenced by them, but that's the exception. Esau was under the impression that wait a minute, Jacob's been living now for twenty years with Laban, one of the wiliest. Uh, most uh, de- deceptive individuals known to, uh, to to the world maybe he was influenced therefore maybe he's spiritually vulnerable comes along jacob responds no i uh i kept all of tarag you won't be able to one up me additionally at the end of this parsha after jacob he meets with esau and he survives that via voyakrov shalem yakov he came complete he was safe I, interestingly, I saw this week, and I saw the Chassam Sofer, Rabbi Moshe Sofer, Rabbi Moshe Schreiber, who was one of the great Jewish leaders uh, of Hungary and Romania uh, in the 18th and 19th centuries. He left an ethical will to his children. And I happened to have just read this yesterday, and it was interesting because it's really pertinent to what we're talking about. So the word Yaakov arrived, Shalem, complete. So he says Shalem is an acronym. Shalem is shame, lashon, and malbush. That's the three letters of shin, and mem. Shin is for shame, Laman is for lashon, and malbush is for clothing. What does that mean? So Shalem uh, can mean, can hint to, shame is the name, and lashon is the language, and malbush is clothing. And in his ethical will to his... Children and his descendants, he writes to his children: Don't adopt non-Jewish names. Don't speak the language of the non-Jews, and don't dress in the style of the greater society. And that's sort of speak like a certain cultural insulation of, of having certain safety measures to ensure that you won't become influenced by your neighbor. But again, it's it's from it's from the idea of Jacob that Jacob. He is unique that despite the fact that he had all these interactions with Laban and Esau, he emerged unscathed. So I think the bottom line here is, is that we're being advised in this Mishnah that the influences that we surround ourselves with are very, very impactful into what we turn out to be. And unless we think about it ahead of time, and we choose who we, cho- who we want to be influenced by. It's going to be too late because we're already going to be influenced by them. And therefore, we're told, distance ourselves from a bad neighbor. If someone is really, really bad, don't even live in the neighborhood. Number one. Number two, don't befriend evil people. People who could be a bad influence upon you, don't become good friends with them. You could have a cordial relationship with them. Sure, we could be nice. We could try to be a, a good influence uh, on others to be a good example upon others, but the people who we befriend with, we spiritually bind ourselves towards, and that could be very dangerous. And lastly, we're told, don't despair from retribution, which could mean either don't be under the false impression that the evil will reign eternally, number one. Number two, it could also mean a very positive spin on a little bit of a uh, depressing Mishnah that... There's always positivity. There's always a silver lining, even when bad things happen. Thus concludes Mishnah 7. Look forward to next time, Mishnah 8.